Turning back tonight in the Word of God to the Gospel of John, the fifth chapter that already we've been reading from, Gospel of John, the chapter 5. And we're looking at the eighth verse, John chapter 5 and the verse 8 under the title, Helpless and Hopeless. Jesus saith unto him, Rise, take up thy bed, and walk. Jesus saith unto him, Rise, take up thy bed, and walk. And with the Word of God open before us tonight, we're going to bow again for a brief word of prayer. Our gracious Father, We thank Thee that we have one to go to in our time of need. We pray at this moment that the Manus family will know that benefit, and that in their time of need, when death has visited the home, that they will know what it is to cast their burden upon the Lord, that He will sustain them. So be with Stanley. Put the arms of thy care round about him. May he know thy great help. Stephanie and Elaine and their husbands and the family connection, we ask that thou will be merciful and gracious to them all. And as we, still counted among the living, still able to listen to thy word, still with another gospel opportunity in front of us tonight. We pray we will hear the word of God, and we will heed it, that we will be saying, but what is God going to speak to my heart tonight? Because I need a message from him. Lord, we pray that thou wilt therefore deal with us in a way that is merciful and gracious, in a way that is saving and wonderful. And as it was the case of this man healed that we're reading off in the Bible reading tonight, we pray not merely for physical healing. That's the secondary thing. We pray for the primary thing, that is healing of our spirit, healing of our soul. Our Lord told us, what shall it profit a man if he should gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Help us to hear that word and to live in that context and to make that calculation that we may be wise. Consider our latter end. Number our days, as Moses said, and apply our hearts unto wisdom. In thy name and to thy glory we pray. Amen. Perhaps the most striking and arresting and therefore the most memorable verse in that hymn that Philip P. Bliss, famous hymn writer, wrote, the hymn was entitled, The New Song. The most famous verse was, How Helpless and hopeless. 
we sinners had been. If Christ never had loved us till cleansed from our sin. I'm convinced we could lift those lines and set them right down into John chapter 5 because very easily and aptly tonight, I believe it can be written over the scene that develops here in front of our eyes on the page of Scripture. The opening verses that we have in chapter 5 in the Gospel of John. If there ever was a thoroughly hopeless and a helpless case, through the entire length and breadth of God's universe, that has found its way onto the page of Holy Scripture, surely it must be that of this impotent man. That's how he's described. And he's lying here, and he's languishing, and he's virtually lifeless in one of those five porches around that famous pool of Bethesda. And if you can come with me and join in and just be part of this spectating crowd here and see him, there he is. And he's infirm and he's paralyzed and he's contorted in body. He's a victim of a cruel and a crippling disease. He's a man whose body is continually, day by day, wasting away. What's he doing here? Well, he's waiting. Waiting for what? He's waiting for that miraculous agitation in the waters in the pool of Bethesda. Because if you look at verse 4 of John chapter 5, you have this information. An angel went down at a certain season into the pool and troubled the water. Whosoever then first after the troubling of the water stepped in was made whole of whatsoever disease he had. And yet the problem is this. He has endured the ravages of this disease for not a short time, but a full 38 years, no less. I'm assuming that he'd spent a lot of the time, if not all of it, around the edge of that remarkable pool. I'm assuming as well he had often tried as much as that paralyzed body had allowed him to get into the water at these key opportune moments. But somebody else... Maybe even a blind man who had no sight of his eyes but had still the use of his limbs would have heard the clamor going on when the waters were agitated was somehow able to get up and stumble along and fall into the water before him and come up with his eyes opened while this poor, friendless, forlorn creature could do no more than lie back and let his dreamy, despondent eyes look over the ripples, the disappearing ripples from the agitated surface of that water and thinking in his mind, what might have been if only it could have been me? Why could I not have had a helper, a friend to get me in? What a helpless and a hopeless case this man was. But look, Christ is coming. He singles out this despairing man. He stops beside him, could have stopped beside anybody else, but he chooses to stop beside him. He addresses him. He speaks to him. And having inquired as to his condition, and with a voice that seemed to thrill this useless limbs of this impotent man and thrill him with vigor, our Lord Jesus with a voice of command, with words that come to him like three tremendous thunderclaps, he tells him the words of our text, John chapter 5 and verse 8, Jesus saith unto him, Rise, take up thy bed, and walk. Omnipotent words these are. 
obeyed words as well, because you'll find this formerly impotent man, he does what Jesus tells him to do. And he rises up and he walks away. He is cured completely. It's a glorious scene, I'm sure. Many a scene that is drawn out, a big cheer, and maybe a lot of clapping. Well, they would be hard-pressed to find a cheer, uh, a scene that would cause you to cheer and clap as much as this one. But why am I preaching on it tonight? Simply because there are men and women, young people, children in this meeting, maybe tuned in over the internet, maybe come across inadvertently this message and days to come. And while they're not hampered by these physical problems such as this man was hindered by, spiritually they are in the same situation as he was. Helpless and hopeless, they most definitely are because they're still in sin. They're still without a Savior. They're without help in this world, and they're without hope in the world to come. That's the situation of every soul that is outside of Jesus Christ. If you don't have Him as your Savior, you don't have help in this world, and you certainly have no hope going into God's great eternity. Now, I could ignore this most serious of problems. I could deceive you, and I could advise and counsel you, and tell you, you know, here's what you need to do. Just attend a church service or two, or maybe three or four or more. Immerse yourself maybe from time to time in a ritual in the church, or some activity of the church. Make sure you come along, and you pay in plenty of money into the offering basket, or into some charitable cause. Do as many good works as you possibly can, because man likes to think it's all about good works. Do as many as you can, and I'll tell you, you'll be all right for heaven. Or I could flatter you, and I could say, now don't be worrying about all of this. You're okay as you are. I know your style. You're a good person. You have a good heart, but I cannot, I dare not, and I must refuse to do that. For if you're a sinner, if you're spiritually sick, if you're outside of Jesus Christ, then you need this message from my Savior, and you need it urgently. Rise, take up thy bed, and walk. And I pray tonight that you will hear and heed the Savior's voice, that you'll experience in your life the healing that you need that is offered to the helpless and offered to the hopeless. Now, notice carefully out of the words here in John 5 and verse 8, first of all, there has to be a lifting up. There has to be a lifting up. Jesus saith unto him, what's the first part of the command? Rise. Rise. Simple, straightforward word. But surely, when you think about it, that's a command not only difficult in the circumstances, but absolutely impossible to comply with. Here's a man, and he's being told, and he's impotent now for 38 years, and he can't move even when the waters are agitated, and he's being told to do something that humanly, of himself, he cannot possibly do. Rise. But how could he? He can't. He can't even manage to roll himself over into the pool. How could he ever hope to rise? He's impotent. He's unable. He can't rescue himself just like every single sinner. 
Back in the days when there were fewer cameras about, must have been rather idyllic, fewer photographs, no Facebook to plaster all those photographs on, no digital technology at all to make it very easy to switch photographs and swap them all around the place and get them moving, and no Photoshop to doctor the image and make yourself look 100% better than what you are in actuality. When it was an event in your life to have a photograph taken, an evangelist with a group of friends was enjoying a pleasant Saturday afternoon in Ryken Glen in Glasgow, and they're strolling about. And that evangelist had a little leather case that he had with him, and that contained his Bible. But as he's walking along, a group of young people, they're out for an afternoon's enjoyment, they come up and they look at his leather case and they think, he's got a pocket Kodak camera, will you, they said, please take our photograph? Without a moment's hesitation, the evangelist said, I have it already. And then the person who was speaking for the group of young people, they were totally surprised, and they said, well, when did you take our photograph? When did you get that photograph? You must have caught us unawares and got us on the hop, and dealers, what the photograph will look like. Well, anyway, he says, I have it, and here it is. And he opened his leather pouch, and he pulled out a well-worn Bible, and he turned to Romans chapter 3, And he went to the verse 9 and started to read there, went right down to the verse 23. And then he said, this is God's photograph of each one of us. And he was absolutely correct. Now the question is, what is God's photograph of you and I like? How do we look in it? Flattering or frank? Good or pretty gloomy? Heartening? Or when you'd look at it, you'd say, that's a hopeless case. Well, let's see. I'll quote verse 9 through 15 and then 18, 22, 23. Here's what we read. What then? Are we better than they? No one no wise. For we have before proved both Jews and Gentiles that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous. No, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. None. No, not one. Their throat is an open sepulcher. So we're into details here of this description. Specifics. Their tongues they have used as seat. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And then Paul concludes this terrible painting by saying there is no difference for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That can't possibly be me, but it is. That's you and I, in incredible detail. This is God's photograph of the natural, ungodly, unsaved man or woman. It's one of his photographs, I really should say, because when I look into other parts of the Bible, I find similar snapshots Way as far back as Genesis 6 and 5, Almighty God is picturing the state of the human heart. And He says, every imagination 
of the thoughts of his heart is only evil continually. Pretty comprehensive and a terrible picture again. Then in the prophet Isaiah, the chapter 1 and the verse 5 and the verse 6, he sets before us another portrait of the ungodly unsee of man or woman, and that's seen again through the unerring lens of heaven. And the question is, why should ye be stricken any more? Ye will revolt more and more. The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint from the sole of the foot, even unto the head. There is no soundness in it, but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores that have not been closed, neither bound up, neither mollified with ointment. That's a pretty repulsive image but it's a picture of where we are in the eyes of God spiritually. So not very pleasant photographs. That's for sure. And the film of the Lord of heaven is many, many similar frames. And he's showing us the state of every sinner on earth. And it's not pretty and it's not complimentary. Far from it, each one of them, it represents us as corrupt and polluted from head to toe. And somebody will say, well, you know, I know people that are far worse than I am, and it's not right and not fair for you to say that I'm just as bad as they are. We have within us in seed form in our total depravity, we have the spark of every iniquity, and given the right circumstances, more than capable of going to the limits, each one of these pictures makes it abundantly plain the natural man is totally depraved he is completely corrupt he is starved of all spirituality he is even as Ephesians 2 and 1 puts it dead in trespasses and in sins and when a man has been written off as spiritually dead then he's not capable not capable of doing anything that's good before God Spencer said Take a dead man and put fire to his flesh. Pinch him with pincers. Prick him with needles. He doesn't feel it. Scourge him. He doesn't cry. Shout in his ear. He doesn't hear. Threaten him or speak to him fair words. He doesn't regard it. He doesn't answer. This, he says, is the condition of one that is spiritually dead in sin. Let the judgments of God, let the terrors of the law be brought to his conscience. Let the flames of hell flash in his soul. He doesn't regard them. He's sermon proof. He's judgment proof. He hears of judgments abroad. He sees judgments on others. Oh, let judgment come to his own doors. And yet he thinks all is well with him. Like Solomon's fool, he outstands all reproof. Such and so deplorable is the sad condition of every sinner. So what are we saying here? Well, what God is saying is this. Without him, without his salvation, your case is helpless. It is humanly hopeless. Inability is written all over it. What will you do? What can you do? Jesus comes to you and he cries as he did to this man, rise. But of yourself, you can't do it. You can't pull yourself up out of the swamp of sin that you're sinking into. You can't hoist yourself out of the tomb of spiritual death that you're lying prone in. You can't pull yourself away from the brink of the bottomless pit that's stretching in front of you, filled with eternal woe and filled with black despair, because to try to do that 
is like trying to lift yourself up by your own bootlaces. It cannot be done, and you can't do it. And so you could say, well, Lord, if this is true, that I can't get above these things, that I can't change my own life, that I can't get my soul into a state where it's ready for heaven, then why, Lord, are you calling on me to rise? But you've overlooked one vital fact. Quoting an old Baptist preacher from Manchester, Alexander McLaren, all Christ's commandments are gifts. When he says to you, do this, he pledges himself to give you the power to do it. Spurgeon said, rise, said he. It was a command that implied faith. The man believed in Jesus. That was all he did. He resolved that he would try his legs. And to his surprise, how astonished he must have been, those poor legs bore him. And so it is with you. When I cry, under the direction of God the Holy Spirit, for you to have faith in God, to repent towards Christ, to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. I don't imagine for a single moment that there's any strength or even inclination in you to do this any more than there was in this paralyzed man because of yourself. You're not able to do it, but because I speak in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, because I bring to you his command to your heart to believe, then I know that just as he commands you to believe, so he will give you the necessary power to obey that command and actually believe. And I'm pleading with him that you will hear his call to rise right now, that you will depend totally, not on yourself, but on him for salvation, that you'll commit your hands into the arms of Christ, and you'll be saying, I do believe, I will believe that Jesus died for me, that on that cross he shed his blood from sin to set me free. A doctor was very anxious about his soul. And he had a patient come into him one day, and he knew the patient was a Christian. And he said to the patient, how could I ever obtain peace with God? The patient said, doctor, I felt that I could do nothing, and so I put my case in your hands. I'm trusting in you. That's exactly what every poor sinner must do with the Lord Jesus Christ. We can't do it. We can do nothing to effect our own salvation. We can only, with our empty hands, come to Christ and embrace Him as He's freely offered in the gospel. There has to be a lifting up. Sometimes we sing in loving kindness, Jesus came, my soul in mercy to reclaim, and from the depths of sin and shame, through grace, he lifted me. From sinking sand, he lifted me. With tender hand, he lifted me. From shades of night to plains of light, oh, praise his name, he lifted me. There has to be a lifting up. But then you'll notice as well, there was to be a leaving off. There was to be a leaving off. Jesus saith unto him, rise, take up thy bed take it up. 
Grab hold of it there. Roll it up. Tie it up. Lug it off. Remove it away from the arena of sickness. For you're not to spread it out again in one of these porches in the pool of Bethesda as if sometime in the future you're going to be coming back and you're going to be needing that bed again. Take it away. Remove it from the place of the diseased. You're not coming back. A great preacher by the name of Biderwolf, William Biderwolf. He said, Jesus wanted this poor fellow to realize that he was fixed up for keeps, that he didn't expect him to take a few feeble steps and then go back and lie down again. It was sad enough, Biderwolf said, God knows, to see that poor paralytic lying there on his sordid bed, but it would have been a good deal sadder to have found him there the next day after Jesus had met him, poured his poor palsied body full of palpitating red carpuso health. And is that not true? To go back to the pool of Bethesda the next day and to find the same paralytic man lying down there again would have been a tragedy. But we read in Scripture that didn't happen. He was rather in the temple, and the spiritual application is blatantly obvious. How sad it is to look out upon those who at one time, maybe they've gone along to a gospel meeting, they've opened the Bible, they've read the Scripture when they've gone home, and in response maybe to the appeal of the preacher that night, either in the meeting or back at home, they have given their hearts to Christ, and they seem to start full of joy, and you thought, as everybody else did, that they're going to seal very well as a Christian over the sea of life and into God's eternity ultimately. But... Just a little later, it was obvious that apparently smooth start had gone. And there was a period of rockiness and unsettlement that came in, and temptations appeared, and old companions and ideas and activities rolled back in again. Former lusts reared their ugly heads once more, and down they went. Down onto the old paths of sin and shame and pollution and iniquity again. Back where they used to be. Now why? What had happened? Very simple. Those persons didn't take up their bed. They didn't really repent of their sins. They left some uncleansed, unremoved, unfinished with. And from that empty position, it was all too easy to go back. One has said, one reason why we have so many paralytic, no account backsliders, we'd better use the term professors, it's more accurate, why we have so many of them in the church is because they made provision for a relapse when they came for the cure, and that's exactly the case. I think of a story that was told by John Culpepper. And there was a time in his experience as a preacher that the church officers brought one of the members in for drunkenness. The guy's name was Johnson. He was very repentant, and he even said to them, I'm totally ashamed of this weakness in my life. Mr. Culpepper told him that he wasn't surprised at all that this had happened. 
But the fellow's feelings were very hurt, and he said, Brother Culpepper, I thought you believed in me, and you expected me to hold out. Mr. Culpepper replied, Johnson, I did believe in you, and I did expect you to hold out, but the first time I saw you in town after you had joined the church, you hitched your horse to the same old hitching post that you'd tied it to for years, just 15 feet from the bar room where you'd spent thousands of dollars and become drunk hundreds of times. And so I said to myself then, if old Johnson don't change his hitching post, he'll be drunk again in six months. If you'd been afraid of yourself, if you'd been afraid of the saloon keeper, if you'd been afraid of your old associates, if you'd been afraid of the devil, and tied your horse away round yonder to the Methodist church horse rack and asked me or Bill Hayes to go downtown with you for the first few times that you were going down, I would have expected you to have made the steep grade. You know something? That old hitching post explains the difficulty with all those professors that you find in the ranks of the church today and gives the reason behind the backslidings of many. You've got to cut loose from the old life. You've got to remove yourself from the old habits, those areas where they're practiced. You've got to get your running shoes on and make distance away from these things. And the more ground you put between yourself and them, the better. What is the thing? that more than anything else is keeping you away from God? What is the thing that is encouraging you to do what this man in John Culpepper's story had done and put on the muddy robe of a, an empty professor? Maybe it's a drinks cabinet in your home. Maybe it's what you're watching. Maybe it's the licentious thoughts that have been filling and you're harboring in your mind. Maybe it's a Christ-dishonoring crowd that you're mixing with and can't break yourself free from. Do you really think that you can become a genuine believer in Jesus Christ and stay one of those without cutting yourself off from all of these things? Nobody in the entire universe will ever be saved unless they have that clean break from sin. Get a new hitching post, man. Get rid of of the scoffing, the careless, the godless crowd. Say goodbye to the old life, to the unclean habits of the flesh, to everything that is mean and low and lustful and unchristian. Cut loose from the sins of former days because you don't want to end up where those described in Second Peter 2 and 22 ended up. It happened unto them. According to the true proverb, the dog has turned to his own vomit again. Yes, the Bible uses this analogy. And the sow that was washed to her wallowing in the mire, there has to be a lifting up. There has to be a leaving off. And then her third and final point, there was to be a launching out. And you'll find that in John 5 and 8 as well. Jesus saith unto him, Rise, take up thy bed, and walk. And walk. That's the responsibility you have after you receive the cure. You can't walk before it, 
You must walk after it. Walk with God. Now, to walk is going to indicate progress. It's like having a travel diary. And everywhere you go, you jot down where you've been, what you saw there, how much you've enjoyed it. You make progress in the Christian life. Walking also involves persecution. 2 Timothy 3 and 12, all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. And this man, healed by Christ, found it out. He's no sooner gone a few steps until the religious mob come around him and they grab him by the lapels and they accost him and they, what, what are you doing? You're, this is the Sabbath day. How were you healed on the Sabbath day? Don't you know you're transgressing the law of Moses and all of that? He'd hardly gone these few steps until these old legalistic Jews were harassing him. Persecution. We mentioned this morning how that we almost think persecution has been left behind in some previous century. I'm sure you've seen the persecution Christians are currently undergoing in, for example, Pakistan, Jaranwala, Christian community there, facing an unprecedented wave of violence and persecution. Forty churches deliberately burned down, four Christian colonies attacked by extremist Muslim mobs, many deaths, people giving their lives because they realize walking with God not only indicates progress, but it can involve persecution. And not only that, to walk increases your peace. Every day with Jesus, it's an old chorus we used to sing, is sweeter than the day before. And that's what we ought to be aiming at. That development in our Christian experience, in our walk with God in his book, History of the Conquest of Peru, Prescott tells the story of the famous Pizarro. Mexico had already yielded under the hand of Cortes. And there was a small company of brave followers that had gone in with him. And then Pizarro thought, well, if Cortes can do it, I can do it as well. He did it in Mexico. I've heard of fabulous wealth in Peru, great opportunity in Peru, glowing reports there. And even though I have to suffer much to obtain the prize, I'm willing to go through with this all the way. And so Pizarro, he was calling on the soldiers, come with me. And they were all ready to desert him. He said, you can go back if you want to. But he drew a sword and he traced a line from east to west on the sand and he pointed toward the south and he said, men, before you lies toil and hunger and drenching storms, disease and possibly death. But there is victory and great wealth and glory as well. Behind you, he said, there's ease and there's pleasure. On this side, there is Peru with its danger and its riches. On the other side, there is being with its comfort, but its eternal disgrace. Now, men, choose. As for me, I will go on. And Pizarro stepped across the line. And in a moment, his faithful lieutenant was at his side, and he said, I too. Then another and another joined, until all of that little band was there at his back, and with their support, Pizarro made the conquest of Peru. 
that has been written extensively about in many generations following. What about you? In the light of the cross of Calvary, the mercy, the love, the grace that was shown to you by the Savior there, in the face of the fiery downfall of hell to which you don't want to go, nobody with any sanity does want to go, where there's weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth, those are the constant noises. Will you say in response to the Lord's command, rise, take up thy bed and walk? Will you say, I have decided to follow Jesus? No turning back. There must be a lifting up. There must be a leaving off. There must be a launching out. Do it now. Come and start for heaven tonight. Decide to follow Christ and say, I will rise at his command. I will take up my bed and I will walk with God.